Hi, this is Chris Stewart from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email at oasisathens at gmail.com. If there's anything that you need, if you have any questions, we want to continue to serve and minister to the needs of our community. May God bless you today, and we hope you enjoy this message from Oasis Church in Athens, Ohio. Well, as I mentioned, uh, we're going to start a new study today, and that study is um, coming off at the tail end of a conclusion of a rather in-depth 10-week study of the Ten Commandments. So today, you know, we've been over in Exodus, which is this part of the Bible, and today we're going to turn all the way back to, we're going to, we're going to skip this much of the Bible. We're not skipping it. It's, we, we, are, we, we, uh, are, we try to be true to, to teach the, 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 the whole totality of God's Word. But we're going to go all the way back toward the end, and we're going to be in 1 John. We're going to do a study from the, seri- uh, from the series of letters that the Apostle John wrote. And so we're going to be in 1 John today. And I just want to take a few minutes um, to talk for a bit about what this brief letter is about. Um, I mean, really, for a book in the Bible, it's, just, it's really, really small. I mean, the 1 John is five chapters, and, and in my Bible, it literally is five pages. So, so, so it, it's, it's, it takes up five pages. And an amazing thing, if you look, I looked this up this week, that in these five pages, John mentions some form of the word love over four dozen times in these five chapters. And so the theme for this, this series that we're beginning today in, in, the, in uh, John's epistle, John's letter, of his first letter, the theme is just simply going to be this, love one another, love one another. And the reason why is because John, what we're going to see is John identifies love as the ultimate test of the validity of someone's Christian faith. And we need to get that up front. Before we, before we go any further, I think we need to understand up front the theme, what John sees is the center, the central characteristic of what a Christian looks like, right? And John was someone who would know from firsthand experience. Now listen, John was someone who was very likely Jesus's best friend or one of his, what Jesus would consider like his best friend when Jesus was walking this earth someone who knew Jesus really, really well, someone who heard nearly every word that Jesus taught because every now and then, even when Jesus would go off to be by himself, he would call just a few of his disciples to go with him. And John was usually always one of those guys that would go and he would get to experience things that maybe some of the other disciples did not get to experience. John heard the way Jesus reacted and interacted with people who disagreed with him. And so John, after having that experience with Jesus, he writes these letters toward the end of his life, and he identifies love as the ultimate validity, the ultimate test of validity of someone's professed Christian faith. And so, as usual, what we like to do at Oasis Church is we like to dig into the Bible and just allow the Bible to teach us. And that's our main priority on Sunday mornings. <clears throat> as a church, as a local church. I could preach on a lot of things, and trust me, I have a lot of opinions about things, about a lot of things. Um, but the fact is, you don't need any more opinions. Um, you don't need any more editorials. Um, your life is filled up with enough opinions and editorials. Opinions about things that people say are facts, opinions about numbers, opinions about stats, opinions about science, opinions about data, just opinions. And opinions are what has gotten us into these messes that we find ourselves in 
living in every single day. We need something better than opinions. We need a firmer found, we need a firm foundation. We have no firm foundation as we're trying to wade through lots of information that's being thrown at us every day. So what is it that we need? We need, we need truth. We don't need a truth or someone's truth. We need truth. And this is the reason why we have to wor- uh, root ourselves in the word of God. Because the word of God is what transforms our opinions. The word of God is what transforms our lives. The word of God is where truth, the truth of God is proclaimed. So when life is uncertain, we need something firm upon which we could put our trust and our faith. And you will not find that firm foundation on Twitter. You won't find that firm foundation on Facebook. You won't find it in your own ideas of morality. When life is frustrating and we feel helpless to do anything at all about it, we need to understand there is incredible power in surrendering. And I know that seems like a paradox, but it's only in surrendering to what we just sang about, the loving mercy and grace of God it's only in surrendering to that that we'll find joy in what is currently really hard circumstances. It's only in surrendering that we're going to find peace in overwhelming storms that you're feeling coming at you every day. And that life-giving freedom from the oppression of darkness and sin that is created because of the, 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 the oppression of darkness that sin creates in our lives. And this is the truth. This is the truth. But here's the key. This is where we get truth. But the key to it is it's, it's got to be believed. Truth believed is what transforms. And God gave us his word for a reason. He gave us his word. One of the reasons why he gave us his word is simply that we would be able to know God, right? Know the truth of who God is. But the other reason that God gives us his word is because sometimes people just say crazy things. And we're, we're, because we're crazy. We're crazy and we say crazy things. And you got to know what is, what, is, what is right and what is not, what is true and what is not. Where can I find truth, right? And, and the way that you know if something is true or not as it relates to God is that you have to juxtapose what someone is speculating about God. You hear this that someone says about God and anybody could just say anything they want about God. But The only way to know whether or not what that person is saying about God is true is you have to contrast it and compare it with what his word says about him. Because God gives us an entire volume of, of books here to learn about what he is like. So if someone says something contrary about what God says about himself in his word, which is inspired of him, but it doesn't match what it says about him and his word, then you can look at that person and say, well, you know what? I know you might think I'm crazy for believing what God's word says, but I happen to trust it. And I think that, I think that it is a source that provides a firmer foundation than your personal opinions or your constructed ideas about who God is. And I choose to trust the word of God. I choose to trust this. This has been preserved for us from generation to generation, and it gives us a firm foundation. This, I say all that to say, this is why we spend so much time every Sunday just preaching from this, just teaching from this. You don't need my opinions. In Acts chapter uh, 17, 
It talks about this, actually. I mean, this is the foundation, the, the early church, the first century church. It says that the, it talks about the, a group of people called the Bereans. And it says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonica, Thessalonians, those people in Thessalonica, because they received the word that they heard, the word, the word, the word that people were preaching about Jesus. They received it with readiness in, of mind. And then, not only did they hear the stories of Jesus, but then they searched the scriptures daily so those Old Testament scriptures to determine if whether or not what they were hearing was true. You know, they, they looked back through the prophecies to compare what they were hearing from these disciples to see, to make sure what it, if it was true. And they were praised. They were, they, they, were, they were applauded for doing that. So God's word is not only the basis for what is true about God, but it's also the basis for you in finding out if what I say is half crazy or if it's accurate. And so I, I say that to, so that you will put me to the test, that you'll put my word, that what my words on Sunday morning to the test as well. If I say this is what something that God says, this is something that John is teaching from his from his letter, then it's vital for us to to go back to the scripture because it's how we get to know truth. It's how we get to know God, and it's how we get to know the truth of God. In Psalm 119, uh, the psalmist says. Uh, and, and listen, Psalm 119 is one of those, is one of those books in the middle of our Bible. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a bunch of songs that, and, and this, this, this one is so huge. It's so large. And it's all about the beauty of God's word. If you summarize Psalm 119 in verse 11, he says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, there are a lot of people who say, I, I, I'd like to change the way that I'm living, right? Well, how can you make a real and lasting change? If you say, I don't want to live this way anymore, I don't want to sin against you anymore, how can I do that realistically? By hiding his word in your heart. That, that's how. That's, that's one of the things that God's word does as well. It's not, just what, it's not just a book that we learn about something, but it's a word that actually can transform you. It says later in Psalm 119, verse 15, he says, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. And so the psalmist, the psalm writer, sees the word of God as the foundation for understanding what it means not only to know God, but to pursue after him and to follow after him with his life. And, and so for the next handful of weeks, we're going to look through one of the books in, in our Bible that relates directly to how God reveals himself in his word to us. And that's why I wanted to share all that little foundation about, about the importance of, of knowing the word of God, because this first John is actually one of the books where God reveals himself to us and reveals how he desires for us to respond to him. It's a really practical book. It's a really practical book for helping us to know and how to live the way God desires, bringing, basically bringing light to darkness, bringing love to a world of conflict. This book gets its name, uh, John, because it was written by John. And it gets its name, First John, because it's the first epistle that John the Apostle wrote. Um, first epistle that John the Apostle wrote. It sounds like a rap. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. That's really all it is. He wrote, he wrote letters. There are a few different literary styles in the Bible. When you pick up the New Testament, so when you when you look at the New Testament, it's clumped together based on literary genres and, and genre styles. Uh, you need to understand that that like the the first four books of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't the first four written. Like we're not looking at them in chronological order. If I were to give you a list 
of the most likely way the books of the Bible were ordered chronologically based on the, the date of when they were written. There's a little bit of debate over some of those in the timeline, but one of the things we know about the New Testament is that we know it was all formed by the end of the first century. So for example, the first books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were not the first books written. Those are the Gospels, and that's why they're all together like that, because they're all, they're all written to tell the story of what Jesus did in his ministry, when Jesus was born, when God came to, 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 to this earth uh, to be born uh, as, as, as the Messiah, and then all the things that Jesus taught. And those different, the reason why we've given four different versions of that is because they're written to four different groups of people. Well, then the next book after uh, those Gospels is the book of Acts. Well, the book of Acts is a history book for how the church grew from Jerusalem to Rome. And so it obviously came about after all those events took place. So, it, I mean, it, it doesn't fit in the chronological order, but it, it fits naturally as you read through uh, the New Testament. And then you have the epistles or those letters. Those are those the specific Specifically, letters that were written to Christians, either in a particular region, like a um, like 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 a city or a town, um, or or just a, a, you know to, to the to churches that were formed there, or to Christians in that town. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, at the Epistle of John, the first Epistle of John, Epistle of John, and um, it's basically a letter that he's written to all Christians, Christians all over the world. He wants us to know uh, the the church, the big C church, to know um, what he has to say at the end of his life here. And and then I don't want to skip this one because it's also written by John, but it's the very last book in our Bible, which is the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation just sort of stands by itself in genre because it's a, it's a letter. Really, it's a letter from, from Jesus to the churches, but it's not looking at present day, then, or a historical account of things, but it's actually looking at future things. It's looking at where, where you might be today, but, but, but what's going to happen in the future. It's a preparation book. Like, get ready. Like, who, who knows exactly what's happening in Revelation? We're not really sure, right? I mean, there are lots of ideas. There's lots of theories. Um, some make more sense than others. But the main point of Revelation for us to see is that it is a, it is, it is a book about worship and worshiping Jesus as eternal God, who is victorious over sin and death. And it's like giving John a vision to see that, that that's going to happen. It's meant for us to look forward to Jesus. It's a worship book of Jesus and his victory. But as a literary genre, it would probably be in the apocalyptic uh, genre. So that's, that's sort of the New Testament in a nutshell, right? The book that we're going to talk about today is 1 John. It's his first letter. Um, John was one of the disciples that was hand-selected by Jesus. It can get confusing sometimes when you hear people talk about John and, and like John and James, for example. There's more than one John and James. There's more than one Judas. And so when we just, when we say John, sometimes some people might think of John the Baptist or John the, the baptizer, the one that came before Jesus. And then there's John the, the, the disciple. And we're talking about John the disciple. Jesus, Jesus uh, handpicked some disciples, and John was one of those. And this is the John that wrote, really, the, what would be chronologically the last five books of the New Testament, chronologically. So the Gospel of John, uh, the first, second, and third letters of John, first, second, third epistles, and then the book of Revelation, were the, the last five to be, to be written by date and then grouped together to form the canon of our, of our Bible. Uh, John was most likely uh, the youngest of Jesus' disciples, um, and, and you'll see that in 
the way he behaved early in the ministry of Jesus as he was a follower. Um, and I think this is also why you see, you know, in these writings, I mean, Jesus was crucified, people say, between you know, somewhere between 29 AD to 33 AD. And so here's John in around like the 90s AD is when, is when these letters came out. And he's the last living disciple. He, he's the only disciple that was not martyred um, for his faith, was not put to death for his faith. He lived longer than all the others. And he's writing this letter to us at the end of his life and, and, and at the time where he's somewhere between 90 and 100 years old, writing this letter of his desire for us, the church, the desire the Lord has for us to pursue God with our lives. And when you study the literature of John, one of the things to remember is that there are other religious movements happening during his time. And we're going to get into that more later. That's not for today. But John tends to write his letters from more of a broad audience for, for the entire world. And that's, that's when you see these writings, you're going to see a lot of them tailored to a Roman society and a Jewish society and to Greeks. John's trying to keep the whole scope in mind. And so we really fit here, here today, but specifically in his day and time, he's writing to the whole hodgepodge of people known as the Roman Empire. And, and what he desires for all of them to know in light of, of who Jesus is, you know, here is what I want to tell you about how to live your life according to God's desires. And he's being inspired by the Lord to tell his story. So when you, when you study the New Testament, um, it's important, I think, to understand some of that background. I mean, some people might even wonder, you know, I, you know, I, I see the writings of the first century apostles, right? The first century pretty much makes up what our, what our New Testament is. Um, why do we not have any more books of the Bible? Some might wonder. Did the Christian community, like, did, did, what, did nobody else write after that? Did, did they not write anything down? Well, of course, people did write, but they're not included in Scripture. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I want to dive into this real deep, but I will give this a little bit of a background in order to better understand that question. The reason why the New Testament concludes with, with John, with the, with the letters that John wrote, and that there's no more writings included in the volume that we know as the Holy Bible is because the New Testament is written under what we know as apostolic authority. And after John, there were no more apostles. So John was the last of the apostles to, to die. And the reason we believe the Bible that we have is, is the full and complete word of God is because there is no more apostolic authority that continues on after John. So the words that we read from John are the last words of those living eyewitnesses of Jesus. Okay. So here is the last, here's the, imagine this. We've got the last living eyewitness of Jesus sitting down to write a letter to us, to the church. What's the last thing he wants to say to us? It's pretty important words. Pretty amazing to think about it really. And so, so what I want to do just to, to get us ready for the book of first John is, is we're going to look at how it begins. And I'm actually going to conclude with looking at the first four verses of 1 John. Because what I really want to do today is I want to help us to know who John is so that we can get a better perspective of who is writing this letter to us. You know, one of the reasons I want us to have an understanding of who John is is because of the way Scripture references John, um, the way the titles he's given, for example. He's given a couple of different titles in, in, uh, in the Gospels. Uh, it's interesting that he, that he has, you know, he, 
his view, or you know, the view of John is a little different from the other disciples that follow Jesus. Um, there's a reason, like you've heard me say before, that I think John might have been Jesus's best friend, like like kind of his closest friend, his closest human friend uh, when he was walking the earth. And and one of the, re- the reasons why people say that is because John is given this title that no other disciple is given, which is the beloved, this, the, 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 the disciple that Jesus loved. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples. It just means that there was something particular about John that everyone knew just kind of stood out. And you see that. You see it in John 13, John 19, and John 20. That's referred to him. He's referring to himself as that a number of times. And, and others didn't disagree. Uh, but that's the way he was referred to, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, John could have been Jesus' best friend. Jesus had a best friend. I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, really, you can only have, we know this, you can only have so many close friends in life, right? I mean, you might have a lot of friends and Facebook's given you opportunity to have more friends than you really care to have or know you know you even have. But really in life, you just only have like just a few really good best friends that you know intimately, right? And, and if you want to see, this is, think about this. If you want to see what kind of person might be someone who Jesus would consider to be my really close friend, my best friend, then we need to look at John. We need to see, okay, what kind of person does Jesus choose to be his best friend, right? Because Jesus references John in this way. So what kind of person can be his best friend? I mean, can I, like, have you ever pondered that? Like, can I be like that? Is it, would it be possible for me to become Jesus's best friend? Well, if we want to know how, what that looks like, let's look at John. Mark, one of the, the gospel writers, Mark gives us account an account in Mark chapter 1, when John was being called by Jesus, in Mark 1 verse 15, Jesus shows up and he, he announces you know, the gospel of his kingdom. His, his ministry is starting and he's talking about the kingdom of God. And then right after that, in verse 16, it tells us in Mark that Jesus goes around and he starts to call followers, specific followers to follow him. And the first ones he comes to are guys named Simon, who's better known as Peter. He gives him a, he gives Simon a nickname right off. Peter means rock. And then Andrew. And then it says in verse 16. So do you have 16 on there or 15? Yeah, 16. As Jesus was going along by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea for they were fishermen. So he calls them. And then he's calling, so he's calling these disciples, and then we get to verse 19. And the next two disciples that are stated here, uh, it says this. So going a little further, he saw James. So there's there's a James, right? Jesus also had a a brother named James, a a little brother named James. Uh, But this is James, John's John's brother, the son of Zebedee. And John, so this is the John we're talking about, the, the one who writes 1 John who are also in a boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and, he, and, they, and, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they went away to follow him. And I kind of love this description. You know, Mark, Mark does this a lot, the gospel, the gospel of Mark. It's kind of an abrupt action. You know, Mark is written to Romans and Romans didn't care about all the history stuff. They just want to know what did he do, right? What, what happened? They just want action. So Mark is a little shorter, gets to the point. So it's a book of action, right? So basically John's called by Jesus and it tells us he didn't delay in the decision. He just immediately left, left that job and pursued Christ with his life. But I kind of want to, I think we should talk about that for a second though, because a little backstory here to consider is important. I don't think John 
here is, or any of the disciples for that matter, are blindly following here. I don't think John's just like sitting in the fishing boat like, oh man, I don't know what to do with my life. Uh, I wish someone would come along and give me direction. Oh, here's someone. Okay, I, maybe I'll follow him, right? I don't think that's, that's not, I mean, realistically, that's not what was happening in that day. I think John was probably already aware of the idea as a Jewish man of the Messiah coming because he was familiar with, with a guy named John the Baptist, there's another John who was out there preaching in the wilderness that people had heard of. They knew him. He was hard to hide. John the Baptist had been teaching and making the pronouncement of the arrival of the Messiah. He's saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And John is John the Baptizer is preparing the way for him. John, John the Baptist's story himself of coming into this world was a miraculous one, and people knew that. I mean, John the Baptist's you know, father uh, goes into the temple. He has a vision before the the Lord, uh, God says he's going to have his wife's going to be, be you know, have a baby, and, and he didn't believe it, and, he's, and so he, he became mute. He couldn't speak until John the Baptist was born, and they named him John. And so Israel's God has been silent for hundreds of years, and now all of a sudden God starts talking to His people again through this prophet John the Baptist. Over four hundred years, God had been silent, and God starts talking to them again. And John the Baptist is the one who's saying He's coming, He's coming. And, and people are aware of the miracle that took place that was the miracle surrounding how John the Baptist came into this world. And then as an adult, he starts proclaiming the Messiah and people have heard that, right? And all that to say, I really think that these individuals, these fishermen are probably a little familiar with this. And so they're looking forward to his arrival. And when Jesus calls them, they likely believe that it is possible. This is it. This is the time. And I'm going to go. So Jesus comes, he proclaims the kingdom, and then he calls his disciples, and for them, they immediately make the decision. There was no introduction to Jesus. I mean, there was a little one, I guess. John, John the baptizer made an introduction to Jesus, but when they saw Jesus, they didn't delay in the choice. They knew, I'm going to follow him. And then, and then, they knew the Messiah we might actually finally see the Messiah. This might actually be him. And they, and they realize that, that, that he's calling them to pursue him with their lives. And then, so they abandoned their small business of, of, uh, that they were helping run with their father, which was a fishing business. And they left it to pursue after the one who they thought very, might very well be the Christ, the Messiah. And then as they walked with him, as they followed him, they began to learn more about him. They didn't fully even understand who he was, even after making the decision to follow him. Think about that. Think about that for your life. Some people are like, well, I got to wait. I got I to gotta make sure I know all about Jesus. You're never going to know all about Jesus. You're always going to know more. You're always going to learn more. If he's calling you to follow him, drop your nets and follow him today. That's, that's his calling for people. There are people that have done that. There are people who have had those epiphanies where it's like, you know what? I know right now God is calling me to follow him. I, I, know, I can tell you to, testimonies of people who have said, I was living this way, and then all of a sudden God just showed up in my life, and I made that decision. It's hard to explain, but it happens, and their lives are never the same after that. And as you start to learn about the life of John, what you realize is that John's a lot like us. A lot like us followers of Jesus. He's certainly not perfect. In fact, he changes a lot throughout his maturity, throughout his life of becoming a disciple, being a disciple. He follows Jesus immediately, but he's got a lot of growing to do. He's got a lot of learning to do. In fact, when, when, it, when the Bible, when the Gospels first referenced John, it says uh, he appointed the 12 
And so Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's calling individuals. He appoints 12 particular people to follow with him. There's a lot of people who follow Jesus. That would be considered Jesus's followers, his disciples, hundreds of people. But he had 12 that he handpicked. And Mark said that he appoints the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter. Listen to this now. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them, to the brothers, he gave them the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, the sons of thunder, right? Like the sons of anarchy, the James and John are the sons of anarchy. You ever watch that show? I know you've watched it. So have you ever seen that show? It's, it's a little rough. Yeah. I think John, John and James is perfect. I mean, that's a perfect imagery. Like if you've ever watched that, it's actually probably the perfect imagery of them early in their life. Because if you're wondering, what does that mean to be a son of thunder? What is Jesus talking about? What it really means is I think John is someone you don't want to tangle with, right? I mean, he had a short fuse. He gets his nickname for a reason, right? I mean, he had a tendency early on in life to, to, to lead more with wrath, you know, with a fist than with grace. Uh, so if you don't agree with him, he's just going to fight you until you do. That kind of, that's kind of what you picture John as being like. They're not mild, meek guys. That's true. Yeah, fishermen. Fishermen are a little rough. They don't. They don't have soft hands. That's right. And that's John, man. I mean, these two brothers. They got a reputation. They're they're given a tag team name, the Sons of Thunder, and that's their that's their name. I don't know if they wore the leather outfits and the masks and things like that, but uh, they'd be wearing a mask today, though. Babunk. <laughs> that was funny. Kaylee even thought it was funny. So John has this reputation early in life of being one that leads with a thunderous attitude. Um, and Jesus gives him a nickname. Um, I mean, I kind of picture it like this. Like, you've all got your groups of friends, right? And sometimes among your friends, you might have a conflict. And, and eventually, like most of you, just kind of get tired of it to the point where you just make a joke and laugh it off. But there's that one person in your group of friends that just can't seem to get over it. They're still over there chapped about it 20 minutes later. John's like that guy, like still steaming about something that happened a half an hour ago. And it's like, calm down, John. I mean, you know, we're, we're all moving forward from here, buddy. It's the kind of attitude that John had as a young man. And this is a guy that Jesus handpicked. The Gospels give us some illustrations of, of where, you, you, you know, everyone probably picked up on this personality and Jesus picking up on that personality and giving him that nickname. In Luke chapter 9, listen to this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, did I give you that one? Uh, it says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, so he sets his face toward Jerusalem. This is talking about Jesus talking about his death. It was coming close to, to his death, burial, and res resurrection. So he's setting his face toward Jerusalem. They're going to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers, messengers ahead of him, and they went into the village and entered the village of, Samar of the Samaritans to take preparations for Jesus into Jerusalem. So they had to, they're making their journey into Jerusalem. What, the, what this is about is they're making their journey into Jerusalem. And in order to get to Jerusalem, you had to go through Samaria. And so a lot of Jews didn't go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria because Jews didn't like Samaritans. They considered them a half-breed of people that they looked down upon. It wasn't right but they're sinful, and that's what sinful people do. That's the way sinful people behave. And so they wouldn't even walk through their town. They didn't want to be seen with them. They were afraid that they walked through, they would become corrupt. They would, you know, they would, they would, their, their minds would be tainted from entering into the region of Samaria. But Jesus, because Jesus loved everyone, loves everyone, he didn't care. He walks right through. He goes through Samaria. He's like, well, it's ridiculous. We're not going around. We're going through. And so Jesus sent some people to go ahead of him to make sure that the preparations could be made for his arrival. 
Well, verse 53 says this, uh, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Well, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And then it says Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I love that story. I love that interaction right there. Because here's John, this young man, right? It's this young, probably the youngest of all the disciples, and he's got a short fuse. He's, he's an apostle. And what's his mindset? His mindset is, you know what? If they don't, we're going to tell them about Jesus. If they don't like us, we're going to ask God to kill them. That's what we're going to do. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait, John. <laughs> Pump the brakes there, buddy. You know, and I like how Jesus was just, no, that's not what we're going to do. And they continue on. John's got this fuse like macho man, like, right, let's just kill them, Jesus. I'll lead the way. I'll go. I'll lead the charge. And Jesus is like, no, we're not doing that. Let's go, John. You've got some things to learn still, right? But this is the same John that we see referenced later in the Gospels, like John 19, 26, just a few years later, after walking with Jesus, we see him referenced as Jesus's best friend. And I think it's in an encouragement for us saying, look, I know you're an overbearing, proud, arrogant person, but there's hope for you, right? You know, that I mean, that, that's, think about John, when I think about John's character and, 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 and his, he has a personality that we can see, no doubt, through the first five books of the Bible, that once God gets a hold of his life, how incredibly powerful his transformed life becomes in the kingdom of God. And here's the interesting thing. He still has that same passion. God just redirects it. And I think a lot of that is, you know, what, 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 you know if you look at our, our own lives and our own struggle, sometimes our greatest weaknesses are often really our strengths that just currently aren't yet surrendered to Jesus. Your greatest weakness oftentimes is the unsurrendered part of you that belongs to Jesus. You're just holding on to it still. Does that make sense? I mean, I think a lot of uh, this is a lot of what happened in John's life. I mean, if you think about who he was, right? Like, you know, Ben said, he's a fisherman. He's rough around the edges. You know, in some areas of Israel, the, the occupation of fisherman was looked down upon. You know, every day he's just grinding it out. You know, he's a blue-collar worker. And he's obviously zealous. He's obviously, you know, passionate. And God knew that we would read a verse like this, you know, like him saying, let's just kill, let's just kill him. Let's ask God to kill him. And we'd be like, whoa, John, that's a, little, <laughs> that's a weakness, John. you got some work to do. you got to get control of that. Get that under control. But maybe we see this and we recognize that it's just an area that's not yet surrendered. It's a, it, it can be used for a good thing. It's just not yet surrendered to the Lord. It, and the problem is actually that we're still holding on, on control. If, if we look at it in our own lives, the problem is we're still holding, we, we have control of it and we need to give that control up. That's the very problem. We need to give control over to God. And when you do, you begin to see incredible things that he can do through you by utilizing those same gifts, those same characteristics, those same things in your personality. You see, God wants to shape your heart. He doesn't necessarily want to change your personality. 
I, I think that's you know, when people, people assume that God wants to change everyone's personality. No, he just wants to shape your heart. He wants to transform your pursuits. He wants you to have pursuits. He just wants to transform them, like we talked about last week. He, wants to, he doesn't want you to remove your desires. He wants to transform your desires. He wants to transform your pursuits and your motivation. And so God's not necessarily about changing personality. You know, he, he just wants to, he wants to redirect you. And so as you read through the Gospels, you see this happening in John's life. He's definitely got some areas in his life that you can tell just aren't yet surrendered to God. You know, maybe he's not fully bought in to exactly who Jesus is. He doesn't fully understand or know, but he's following him. He's following him. And where does this change happen in his life? Where does this, you know, we talked about this just paradigm shift sometimes just happens in John's life when he's following Jesus. Not just following him, but where does the shift take place where he's actually becoming transformed by Jesus, where he's actually becoming like Jesus? I really think you can see the answer in John chapter 10, verse 35. It, it doesn't outright tell us that in the passage, but I think this might have um, been one of those moments for John that was a little embarrassing for him. Uh, when he started to think through this, when he maybe afterwards, when he started to think through it, and as he wrote the story in his own gospel, he's probably like, "Ooh, this is a, this is a self-deprecating moment. I can write about myself here." Uh, and actually, I think this is one of the reasons why you can trust that Scripture is true. I mean, really, if you think about, it, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but, 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 you know, I think you can look at Scripture and trust it as true because when you study the individuals who wrote the scripture, they don't really care how you view them. Like they're not trying to make themselves look great. They only care about how you view Jesus to the point to where they're even going to use their own life as examples for what not to do that, that makes them not look very great in order to show you really how great Jesus is. And so when you read about John and you see John talking about all of his screw ups, his desire in his life isn't for you to necessarily look at him and be like, wow, John, you're amazing, but rather to look at Jesus and think Jesus He's amazing. And so here's one of those stories in, um, did I say John 1035? I meant Mark 1035. I gave you the right one. Oh, sorry, Allie. I'm confusing her to death here. Yeah. Let me make sure that I'm right about that. 10. 1035. Yeah. Yeah. Starts with James and John, right? Sons of Zebedee. So, Here's, here's one of those screw-ups, okay? Let's just read it. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, Well, what is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. So it's like, you know... <laughs> How, you know, how audacious of John. I mean, how great does John and James think they are? I mean, these two knuckleheads, they're like, we're kind of like, we're kind of like your right hand and left hand God. And so we're going to tell you what, what, you know, what you need to do for, you know, for us. And it's like, you grant for us what we want you to want. I mean, so if you're, if your faith in the Lord is to the point in your life where you think God is about you coming to him and telling him what he needs to do for you, then you got things a little misconstrued about what the Christian faith is like. God didn't create you so that he could become your servant and you could tell him what he needs to do for you. God created you for his glory. You exist for his glory. As we talked about earlier, before we begin to worship, we tend to forget that. 
And so the struggle in our own lives is to, re- you know, is to recognize that whenever I live for, you know, for God's glory, it's actually for my benefit. I actually benefit when I live for God's glory because that's how he created us. He knows what's best for us. And he knows that living for his glory is actually going to be the greatest benefit that we could ever receive. What I mean by that is if you want joy in life, you could try to seek it in a bunch of things, but until you start living for his glory, you will never experience what real joy is. If you want peace, you could try to find peace in a lot of ways, but until you start living for his glory, you will never know a peace that he comes to give you. When I live for my own glory, the opposite occurs than what it is I'm looking for. It usually ends in destruction. When you look at the, I mean, when you look at the struggles in our world, I mean, that's what it comes down to. A lot of the problems that we have, a lot lot of the problems that we are seeing are all around us is people relying on their own strength and purpose, people living for their own glory. And when that happens, when you live like you're the God of your life and you determine everything about your life and you you determine it in your own strength and in your own purpose, then what happens is you eventually begin treating other people like they're tools and pawns and you take advantage of them, maybe without even realizing it maybe under the guise of kindness. But when we understand that things in this world are created for God's glory, and that includes us, all things belong to him, that includes us. And we surrender to that and we live for his glory and we use our strength to his glory, to the benefit of other people. And then that result is that everyone ends up blessed. And you're more blessed because God, when God is glorified in us, we become more satisfied in life as we live in and for him. And so here is this story where John is finding out about this very struggle in a very personal way. And he's like, you know what? I haven't heard any other disciples ask for this yet. So, you know, Jesus is the king, right? So God, you know, we know that you're, that we we're getting the idea that you're the king. So when you have your spot on your throne, we're just going to sit on your right and your left, right? So before any of the other disciples ask this question, we're going to go ahead and take up spot number one and spot number three or spot two and three, right? Jesus has spot one. We're going to take spot two and three. And so Jesus, we're here to tell you what we want you to do for us. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take those second and third positions. Well, and rather, rather than heed what John and James are saying, Jesus tells them to do, to do something with that very thought. He tells them what they can do with that thought. He says this in verse 43. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, this is Jesus identifying himself, referring to himself as the Son of Man. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus using the word ransom here is a really beautiful word picture because it's the word it's a word that relates in the Old Testament to the word redemption, one of the Passover lamb. Jesus is saying he is giving his life as the sacrifice for the benefit of of people around him. And I think this might be the moment where the light bulb clicked on for John. I think this is probably the wake up call for John, one of those epiphany moments. And we all have, I, every, every one of us who has ever come to follow Christ has had one of those moments where you just realize, you know what? Things are not going to be the same. It's never going to be the same again. What you once believed, you no longer believe. What you once lived for, you now kind of see is not that big of a deal. Not, it's kind of futile, actually. 
You may not have all the answers in that moment, but you just know things are going to be different from this point forward. And I wonder if this was one of those moments for John, the the writer of the letter that we're going to study. I mean, he's told straight up by Jesus, if you want to be great in the Lord and in his kingdom, the way to do that is to drop the ego and become the lowliest of servants. And I think the understanding of who Jesus was and what Jesus was about was finally beginning to come very clear, become very clear to John in that moment and in his mind because of what happens in the life of John from that moment forward. I mean, John's way of thinking leading up to that moment is exactly like our world. It's all about me. It's all about me. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm just going to answer the question of whatever makes me happy. That's what I'm going to do. Whatever, you know, whatever, whatever's going to give me joy. That's what I'm going to do. But Jesus is the opposite. He just, he directs our desires through humility, through the heart of a servant. And he shows us a better way to live, a better way to look at the world, a better way to go about our life. And in this moment, John sees his heart and he knows what it's about, I think. Jesus shows it to him. He's like, takes it out. This is what you're living for, John. Lay your heart down for me. Let me give you my heart for other people. And I really think that this calling is what drew out John's heart and changed it because of what happens now in the, from that point forward, what happens in the description of John. When you see John being described as the beloved, the one that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved, that title does not start happening for John until John 13, 23, which is the events of the upper room with Jesus, the Last Supper. It was when they went into Jerusalem. So if you look at the chronology of when that took place, so the story that we just read about walking on their way there, That took place on their way to the upper room, on their way to that Last Supper. When Jesus enters the upper room, now the title is given to John that's reflected in John 13 and John 19, verse 25, and John 20, verse 2. John 19 is the story of Jesus hanging on the cross. And I think in the moments between that interaction that he had with Jesus about sitting on the right hand of him to the the cross, I think John finally understood in, in, in in, in in that time between that interaction and the cross, he finally understood who, what Christ was about. And I think this might be the only reason that John was the only disciple that shows up to the cross when Jesus is there being crucified. Now, all the other disciples, they, they scattered, man. They understood that this moment could actually cost them their lives too. But in these moments, John didn't care about his own life because what he loved was Jesus. All he was about was Jesus, his best friend. And again, I, I want to be careful to say this. I don't think that Jesus, in calling him the, the one that he loved, in using that John, you know, that dis, that word for John, the disciple that he loved, it didn't mean that he didn't love the other disciples. I just think that there's something particular there. I think in saying that, it, it might be saying that John finally sees who he's about. Not that John finally did enough to earn Jesus's love, right? I don't think that that's that's certainly not what it's saying. But rather, it's teaching us that John is the maybe the first of the disciples to really begin to experience God's love in a true way because he has yielded now his heart to the goodness of who Jesus is. I mean, when you think about what it means to be loved by the Lord and to, and to have 
this title that John has. I, I don't I don't think it's certainly not an impossibility for all of us to have this title. I mean, if you were to look in First John, this, the book that we're going to study, for, you know, in the second chapter of First John, starting with verse one through the rest of the book, that's pretty much what John is saying. He's referring to all of us, the church, as little children beloved in the Lord. You are His beloved. Jesus sees you as loved in Christ. And the, the same title that John, that's given to John in the Gospels, He is using for us. He's using for you in His letter. You, the church. Why does he do that? Because that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be made up of people who understand who Jesus really is, and then his love is lived out through our lives to the rest of the world. So what kind of heart becomes a really close friend of God like John? If I were to give you a verse that I think really sums it up of the kind of heart that can become a best friend of of God, it would be in James chapter 4. I don't, did I give you this one? I don't think I did, did I? Now, this is the James, okay, so this is not John's brother James that wrote the book of James. This is Jesus' brother James that wrote the book of James, all right? Because Jesus is half-brother, I should say. So in James chapter 4, verse 8, I think he writes in this passage what it really means to be a friend, you know, a best friend of Jesus, a, best, a friend of God, to follow after Jesus as if you are one of those beloved, right? He says this, draw near to God, and look, here's the, here's the promise. When you draw near to God, He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This double-minded, the way he ends that, James is recognizing something within all of our lives, that there's this battle within us to live for two different sets of priorities. You know, mine or Christ's. You know, this world or Jesus, that's kind of what's always, the, that's the tug of war constantly. And James is recognizing this, the dichotomy that that struggle is, that you can't, you just can't do it. You can't live for two masters. And so he's calling us in that moment to say, look, you want to be nearer to God than get rid of the double-mindedness in your life. Live for either one or the other. That's what it's got to be. And so in this call, James is saying, draw near to God. How do you do that? You got to let go of something. In order to draw near to God, you got to let go of something, Right? something that's really something the world that's important to you. Purify your heart from that. And he says in verse 10, just like John, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You know what that is? That's surrender. That's what we talk about. When we talk about surrender, that's what it is. That's what it, it's referring to God in the presence of the Lord. You know, where is Jesus there? Where, where are they picturing Jesus? He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the one of primary authority. Lay yourselves down before this king, King Jesus. This is a practice of Christianity every single day where we wake up every day and we say, God, you made me for you. You made me for your glory. And I really think that the delight of life, the greatest joy in life is found in living in that way. I can fool myself into thinking that I live for myself every day and find joy, but I've lived in this world long enough to know that that doesn't happen. I am ending up bankrupt in that pursuit. I'm tired of me. It just doesn't lead me to where I want to find myself. I try to fool myself into thinking it will lead me into where I want to go. But God, you created me for your purpose. And I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust in your goodness of who you are over and above anything else that I try to put myself in a position of because I've seen who you are and it's good. And I think that's what happened with John. I think this is the kind of attitude that gave John the title in Galatians as a pillar. That's the way it refers to him in Galatians chapter 2. He's a pillar of the early church. So by the time we get to 1 John... What happens is, it's, 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 you know, he's, it's the, 
He's the last of the original apostles. He's gone through a ton in his life. He's probably a little bit lonely. Most I mean, there's a good chance he's probably in these moments in the late, you know, in, in his last days of his life. He probably longs to be with his loved ones. I mean, he's probably lived a life long enough to where heaven has more for him that he cares about than earth has. And he probably really wants to see his friend Jesus. He saw his other older brother James martyred. He saw all of his other friends martyred. And, and he himself, I mean, they tried to martyr him. People tried to, they tried to boil him alive. They sent him off to live by himself in exile on an island of Patmos because of his faith in Christ, because he wouldn't shut up about teaching Jesus. And now he's back and he's, and, 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 and you, you think about this, the last living disciple, what wisdom can we gain from learning from this guy? I mean, I think the early church recognized what kind of treasure they had in John. So much so that later in his life, John was in the church at Ephesus and history even records this, that as John got toward the end of his life, he was so feeble that he couldn't walk anymore. And so when the church would gather, they would, they would run out to John's home and they would, they would physically carry him to the church, to, to where they were meeting. And they would just prop him up before people. And they were like, John, teach us. I mean, they, they, just, they, they wanted to consume as much as they could before he died. Tell us your stories about Jesus. And history says that by the time he'd gotten so old that he could only really utter a few words, the only thing that he would say was this, love one another, love one another. And so that is my prayer as we study the letters of John and as we learn from John, that we would learn how to love one another. So if you were to take the book of John and... Just read the introduction. I'm, that's what I want to do. So remember, by the time, as I'm reading this, by the time John writes this, he's almost 100 years old. And, and he doesn't want anything from you. Instead, I think he wants something for you. He understands what a gift it is to pursue Jesus Christ in your life. And he wants to see this happen in the next generation and the, other, the next one to come after that, the next one to come after that, and to all the way to our generation. And so we're going to unpack his, his, this, these words later, but I just want to conclude today by reading these first four verses in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. And I'm going to read from the, the Christian Standard Bible. And I don't know, were you able to get that on there? You were? Okay. Here's what it says. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So what does God want for you? What does John want for you in writing this letter to you? He wants you to experience the joy of following Jesus. Let me pray for you that that would happen for you. And then we're going to conclude with a song. God, if there are people today who have joined us in this online worship and teaching of your word and they have been pursuing um, 
trying to find joy and happiness in ways that did not include glorifying you, seeking you and your kingdom first. Because you say that for all those who do that, who seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, you will provide all other things that they need. And God, if if joy is something we need, and we know your word wants us to have joy, we see that in John's letter, that his desire is that our joy would be made complete. We know that you desire for our joy to be made complete. And the only way that that happens is surrender to Jesus. And so I pray today that we would indeed surrender to Jesus. For anyone that's tuned in right now that just needs to make that prayer, do it. As we sing this song, respond to Jesus in your heart. Respond and tell him, you know, God, I, I surrender to you right now. I don't know, I don't know you very well, but I, I feel you calling me. Just as Jesus called John, and John wasn't fully ready. John's a completely different kind of person at the end of his life than he is when Jesus called him. But that's what Jesus does. The more you spend time with him, the more he just shapes you and molds you. And your life, the life that you live from that point forward, is never the same. Thank you for the example of John. May we follow in his example as we pursue Jesus with our hearts.